Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the Naval Institute. Today is Tuesday, March 7th, and we're going to be talking about the March issue of Proceedings, the annual Naval Review. Good to have you on board, everybody. And um, I'll go to my guests now. Uh, today, uh, Bill Bray, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, and Brian O'Rourke, the Senior Editor of Proceedings. Brian, Bill, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here, Bill. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> so the, so the March issue's out. Um, it's got a great picture of a, uh, a Marine aviator uh, on the cover, air crewman from um, MV-22 Osprey unit, uh, cool shot. And uh, we, uh, I, I mentioned in my editor's page that one of the best things, one of the best changes we've made in the last couple of years is that we, we used to do the annual review or the Naval review in May, which is kind of a long time after the previous year that we were reviewing ended, and now we do it in March. And so, um, uh, you know, it's great to be still have 2022 sort of fresh in the rearview mirror and look back on it. And we're also it's a it's a little bit of a big ask to uh, uh, for the review section authors to say, OK, you know, by the end of December, they're like starting to wrap it up and put it into text so that we have it in early January because the March issue goes to press you know, by fifth, about the 15th of February. So it's a, it's a pretty quick wrap, but we always have, we have the Naval Review, uh, we have the Marine Corps Review, the Coast Guard Review, the Merchant Marine uh, Review, and, and also avi Naval Aviation and uh, Weapons um, uh, Procurement. Um, and so uh, do one of you, on a, one of you want to jump on one of those uh, review sections and just kind of hit the highlights? Sure. Um, I, I worked with uh, Wes Hammond and John Quinn, both retired lieutenant colonels on the uh, Marine Corps Review. Wes has been doing it for us for a very long time. I shouldn't say very long. It'll make him feel um, the wrong side of whatever age he is. Um, the last year, a lot of stuff happened in the Marine Corps, and they cover it pretty well. Uh, but as you can see from the header there, uh, the first subhead in it, the future is subject to debate. One of the big things they touched on in 2022 was criticism from mostly without uh, the Marine Corps about Force Design 2030. Um, I hesitated on the word without because a lot of it came from retired senior people, uh, retired fans of the Marine Corps, uh, people who felt that it was best to take their grievances public for whatever reason. Um, you know, some of the criticism was very thoughtful. Some of it was very constructive criticism. It was things that, you know, could be better about this. Uh, but they also talked a lot about what General Berger has done, which is not simply say, you know, this is what the Marine Corps needs to be. He said to Mickwell, the Marine Corps warfighting lab, go test this. Go tell me what it should work. One of the things I learned from reading Trent Hone's book, Learning War, was that Admiral Nimitz actually invented the Combat Information Center. Um, he instructed the Pacific Fleet to create this thing, and he described what it would do. And then he told them, go figure it out. Um, that's kind of what General Berger has done here. He said, you know, I have a vision for what I think the Marine Corps needs to be to fight. And it's still... 75% what it's been for a long time in most ways with some changes, but mostly the same. And then 25% is uh, Marine littoral regiments and things like that. Um, 
So uh, our authors really, they spent their time talking about starting with the criticism, then kind of going through the events of the year, particularly the standing up of the Marine Littoral Regiments uh, or the 3rd Marine Littoral Regiment and the plans for the others and other changes going on within the service. But uh, it's a nice mix of what happened and what it means. And that's, as you said, you know, one of the things we've done with the change is emphasize a little bit more with the authors. We want a little more analysis. We want a little more what it means because they can get what happened from USNI News. They can get it from other sources, but our experts give them the context. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Bill, you were the editor for the Naval Review section. And I found that one interesting this year because uh, the authors really delved heavily into you know, the sort of the programmatic, the procurement progress that the Navy's made uh, this year. So that was the the emphasis of uh, of what they really analyzed uh, in large part with less of the, you know, here, this carrier strike group went here and this exercise happened. It was it was big on how how's the Navy doing in its modernization effort? What are what are some of the key highlights? Yeah, well, that's right. Um, first of all, uh, this year, we had a different author on it. We had Rob Holzer, who's done it since 2011, I believe, and, and Dmitry Filipov, who uh, is the editor-in-chief of Simsec, um, jumped on as a co-author. And he replaced Dr. Scott Truber, who had done it since 1994. So Scott Truber uh, did the Navy in review for almost 30 years, 28 years. And um, it was time for him to, to step down and, and take a knee on it. But we, we owe him a all the proceedings family owe him a, a debt of gratitude for all those years of doing it. Um, uh, it is a mostly a, a, an article about uh, shipbuilding, recapitalization, where the Navy's going. Um, and it's, it's not about, you know, what this ARG did on, you know, this date in this part of the world, that sort of thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the first big point that uh, Dimitri and Rob make is that the, uh, contrary to some of the gloom and doom you hear constantly about how the Navy's got everything screwed up and it can't find its way out of a paper bag when it comes to shipbuilding. They actually, the shipbuilding account and Congress has increased the shipbuilding account pretty significantly over the last four or five years. Now, some of that is because of the uh, cost of the Columbia class is, is, is part of that. But um, they actually are putting more money into shipbuilding, whether it's enough Probably not. Um, are there enough shipyards working? Probably not. Um, does it take too long to get ships built? Yes. Uh, do they run over? Uh, do they, are they over cost? Uh, generally, yes. Uh, not always. But uh, so but it's still not as bad a story as um, as people may think. Um, the way you tell it there, Bill, it sounds like uh, that joke about Wagner's music. It's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't. Yeah. Well, I think Wagner's pretty good. But uh, um, so uh, so shipbuilding is growing. Um, the Virginia um, class um, uh, is, is coming along with the Virginia payload mo module, which will be um, the first on the uh, Arizona, I believe. Um, SSN 803, the first uh, U.S. ship to bear the name Arizona since the battleship Arizona, uh, which was obviously sunk at uh, Pearl Harbor, Harbor and is still there as a memorial. Um, the Columbia class uh, SSBN is uh, the first, uh, <clears throat> they did the steel cutting on the first boat, which is the District of Columbia. So the Columbia class is 
uh, is is still called the Columbia class, but the first boat is the USS District of Columbia. Um, and the um, they talk a little bit about uh, the Block 5 Tomahawk, which is pretty cool for those who have followed the um, the story and the history of the Tomahawk missile, which goes back to the seventies um, and how it's evolved over time. Um, it's got a, you know, it's got a cool anti-ship variant that's coming out um, and see what block three, which is a huge increase in uh, electronic warfare capability for the flight three Burks. And they, they explain pretty well in the article, what a, uh, what a really massive modification of the superstructure this takes to put this in. Um, and that the Flight 3 Burks are essentially, after this, kind of tapped out on how much they can have on, on that hull. Um, you can't put too much more on it. Um, yeah, space, space weight and power, right, are, uh, are kind of tapped out on that, which is why the Navy's talking about DDG next or DDGX, whatever they're going to call the next, uh, the next surface combatant. Yeah, and finally, um, they touch on the, the Ford class, finally, you know, uh, doing a deployment, sort of a short deployment, the light, but it's operational, the, uh, the, the USS Gerald R. Ford, and the, um, they're starting to build uh, the um, Constellation-class frigates uh, out in Wisconsin. So uh, they're coming. And finally, I guess uh, the Zumwalt uh, DDGs, uh, the Navy decided we have a purpose for this, and it's called hypersonic. <laughs> and uh, um, so the uh, the first Dumwalt made a deployment. It was the actually the second hull, I think, the Michael Monsoor. But, uh, um, and uh, that's what they're going to be uh, used for, kind of high-end hypersonic warfare. Yeah, no, it's a good, good piece. And uh, as you mentioned, Scott Troover, huge thanks uh, from the Naval Institute for 30 years of doing that. And to um, uh, to Rob and to Dimitri, great work on this year's review. Uh, I wanted to highlight the uh, Merchant Marine and World Maritime Review, written by Shashi Kumar. Kumar, I think this is his 11th or 12th year that he's been doing this one. And I, I like this section every year because a lot of folks in the Sea Service, I was included in this. We tend to focus on the military aspects of the sea, on naval power, power projection, that sort of thing. And not so much on the commercial aspects, which, as Nick Lambert pointed out a couple of years ago in his American Sea Power article, was really the main highlight or the main focal point of, uh, of Alfred Thayer Mahan's thinking and writing, um, you know, it's the, uh, the maritime industry. Shashi is a master mariner, a professor of maritime industry and logistics. So if you only have time in, in your year to read one article on the mar maritime industry, um, the, the Maritime uh, Merchant Marine Review, World Maritime Review, is, is the one I would recommend. Um, the big story for this past year, 2022, was the story of grain shipments out of the Black Sea, which, as uh, Shashi points out, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, was 137,000 tons per day. Uh, so, you know, a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier is a little over 100,000 tons. And I had to check I actually asked uh, the editor, Jenny, who was working on this one, to double check that, that figure, because when you think of 137,000 tons per day, that's a lot of grain uh, being moved out of, you know, grain elevators onto bulk cargo ships and, and through the, uh, the Turkish Straits. But it was 137,000 tons pre-invasion, and it went to zero. And a lot of that grain shipment, a lot of that uh, foodstuffs uh, went to the third world, uh, went to World Food Program, went to... 
you know, to stave off the potential of, uh, you know, starvation and famine in a lot of a lot of unfortunate countries. Not so much went to the United States, but, you know, uh, commodities are, are global. So it had an impact on food prices. So that was one of the things that impacted, um, you know, the inflation rate here at home and, and abroad in, in 2022. And it wasn't until July 22nd, five months later, that, uh, you know, the Turks worked out this deal between the Ukrainians and the Russians to, to restart those grain shipments. Um, but five months of, of zero grain coming from the breadbasket, at least of Europe, uh, is a long time to go without great grain. So um, had a big, big impact. Uh, Shashi also points out that 2022 overall was a pretty poor year for the shipping industry. Uh, fuel fuel uh, prices, lube oil uh, prices uh, spiked. Part of that had to do with the embargo on Russian um, you know, uh, oil uh, and gas. Um, uh, also, because of the war, insurance costs were way up. And so because of that, the, uh, uh, the, the, the shipping industry globally just had a pretty tough year. Um, you know, of course, there are some highlights in, in, in and around, uh, you know, all economic statistics. For example, uh, the cruise industry started to come back. So people were, you know, traveling again. Airports were crowded and cruise ships were uh, once again full of, pretty full of bookings. And so uh, cruise ship companies were uh, making a profit or making some money again last year. So anyway, um, Shashi Kumar does a great job with the Merchant Marine and, and World Maritime Shipping Review. And I commend it to people every year because if you're a generally focused on the Navy uh, or naval and, and uh, uh, you know, international sort of security power projection, military aspects of the sea, you'll learn something every year from reading Shashi's review. Well, that's Nick Lambert's point in his contribution to the American Sea Power Project. What's a Navy for? Yeah. It's all that. Yeah, right, right. To protect shipping um, or to uh, to mangle shipping of the, uh, the of your adversary, right? That's not the word. <laughs> It yeah. became necessary to mangle the ship in order to save it. Right, right. Uh, actually, I think Nick used the word derange to to protect shipping, right. to promote shipping, or to derange shipping of your adversary. Uh, but Shashi uh, Shashi makes that point um, pretty pretty clearly every year uh, that it's all about keeping stuff moving on the high seas because without it, the global economy just grinds to a halt pretty quickly. Um, let's talk about the general prize essay contest. So this is also the issue every year where we publish the winners of our general prize essay contest. And so uh, for our listeners, the deadline for the general prize contest is always at the end of the year. So this past year it was, I think, uh, what, December 31st. And then we, um, we judge them quickly. No, no, this year it was actually, it was earlier, right? We moved it. We moved it earlier to, to October meet this deadline. 31st, I think. October 31st. And then... Um, uh, we read them, we judge them, and then we've got them. You know, the winners picked by early in the year, so we can publish them in the March issue. And um, we judge them in the blind. Uh, top prize winner for the general prize essay is six thousand dollars, with three thousand for second prize and two thousand for uh, for third prize. And it's always surprising to see who wins. It's uh, you know very rarely an admiral, and um, this year the uh, the first prize winner was a civilian who had never written for us before. Uh, who wants to, to uh, tackle that one? Well, I, I edited that one, so I'll jump in on it. Um, Mike Sweeney, I think unintentionally, wrote a nice compliment to uh, the last general prize essay winner, uh, David Allman, 
Um, as you mentioned, Bill, you know, it's rarely an admiral. In David's case, it was a Air National Guard pilot from Alabama. Um, David last year said, you know, don't buy platforms, buy missiles. You can get more of them out faster. Mike this year said, well, if you're going to buy platforms and you need to fire missiles, these are the platforms that will help, in essence. You know, he was focused on undersea warfare as an opportunity to project power inside the second and first island chains uh, with lower risk than trying to put a DDG well inside China's so-called WES, the weapons engagement zone. Um, so it's a, it's a smart article. It's an interesting article. I think it's an article some people are going to take exception to in some ways. Um, if you do, I edit, also edit the letters to the editor, comment and discussion at usni.org. So please send your cards and letters. Uh, all one word, no punctuation. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a good opportunity to think, again, about what a Navy is for, but also how a Navy might execute its mission in the face of someone who has spent years designing a system that is intended to block all the strengths of the US Navy. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a circumstance, maybe the Maginot line, where somebody so deliberately said, this is the adversary, this is how they fight, and this is how we will set up a perimeter that will keep them from fighting. It isn't a generalized defensive line. It's this will beat the US Navy and nobody else. I mean, it'll beat anybody else too by virtue of the fact that the US Navy is the biggest um, and the most capable, but it's, it, they don't care about Japan's Navy or, or Korea's Navy, except in so far as they support the US Navy. So Mike's got a smart take on it, an interesting take on it. And um, it was one of the easiest reads for being so substantive in the whole contest. Um, Sometimes you read through it and you think, wow, I learned a ton, but wow, I put a lot of brain power into learning that ton. Right. Uh, Mike made it clear to us pretty easily. It did not, it was not something where it required uh, tons of red ink to get into shape. Yeah, I agree. That, that one, I was thinking of that article also while I was out at West, which was now three weeks ago, and the <laughs> conversation about shipbuilding and about ship uh, maintenance and getting ships through the shipyards quicker, you know, on time, on budget. Um, and one of the admirals, I believe it was the um, uh, sub pack commander, but I could be wrong on that. But um, this was, this theme was echoed was, hey, um, at any one time, about a third or so of our submarines are in maintenance, uh, an extended maintenance period. And so if we only have, you know, 50 or so, and, and the number is going down in terms of, uh, so, you know, before it will start to come back up of, uh, you know, fast attack submarines, um, you know, that's a problem if this is our key uh, relative strength over the PLA Navy or the PLA military within the first island chain. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a, just a terrific piece. And, um, you know, it, it points to, hey, if you've got a strength, you got to, you know, you got to put some, you know, more energy and more budget behind that strength, that relative strength. Uh, if, if you want to capitalize on it. Probably the most controversial thing in it is that Mike, Mike addresses the numbers you just said and says, okay, let's suppose we could even surge most of those that are in the yards right now, which is an optimistic assumption, but even assuming that, and assume you've got 
subs elsewhere and aren't going to move them from elsewhere. It's a relatively low number. So his, one of the things he says is maybe what we should do is divert some of the later Columbia-class submarines to the SSGNs once we have a sufficient number capable of going to sea as a strategic deterrent. Uh, that's going to raise some hackles, I think. Um, there's talk of, apparently, building a few additional once the t initial 12 are done to, to be intentionally SSGNs. Uh, but he thinks without with the four Ohio class that have been converted to SSGN, that they'll all be retiring in the next few years, that they were kind of at the end of their ballistic missile life when they got the conversion and they're continuing to go. But without that, the Virginia payload module is good, but it's insufficient. And uh, I, I, I'll be interested to see what the readers think about that idea. Yeah, what's the, the, the number comparison in terms of uh, cruise missiles that a uh... Ohio class SSGN can can launch somewhere around 150, and yeah. or carry 150, and the and the, the Virginia payload module is 12, 16. It's it's a lot less. So the, I think if I remember correctly, the the first version of the Virginia payload module, which isn't called the Virginia payload module, but is a small plug at the front of the hull, I think has four VLS cells. So depending on the missiles, it could do between. Four and sixteen, although you, there's nothing I think you'd quad pack in those cells. Um, so it's probably you know four in most cases. Uh, I think it's twelve cells. So uh, I'd have to double check that. I don't have that off the top of my head right now. But it's even if you stick it in every Virginia sub at sea, it's still not the hundred and fifty six you can get from a, from an Ohio class that's been converted. Got it. Uh, Bill, did you uh, edit one of the uh, uh, the GPEC winners, the second or third prize? No, I mean, I'm I, not the primary editor, but you know, I've read them all. Aaron Marchant's the uh, Lieutenant Commander Aaron Marchant wrote the uh, second prize winner. Um, he is a submarine officer um, and on his way to be an XO. Strategy by other means is the title that you can see there. Uh, the gist of this is that the U.S. Navy should be um, it should be built to serve a, the foreign policy ends of the United States. And he takes you through, takes the reader through four uh, schools of foreign policy um, in the U.S. history, uh, starting with um, Hamilton, Hamiltonian foreign policy, which is about really about protecting commerce. And uh, that's the primary purpose um, of uh, having a Navy. Uh, J Jeffersonian policy, uh, foreign policy, which is essentially that, hey, just a few countries like us can be democracies and we should just protect ourselves and stay home. And uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an isolationist uh, focus, focus at home, focus on the domestic front. Um, then there's the Jacksonian foreign policy, which quite frankly is a little confusing. And even Marchand says, says so in the, in the article that it's, it's on one hand, it's, you know, most foreign adventures are a waste of time, treasure and blood, um, and uh, we shouldn't get involved in it. But we need to be strong so we can, you know, kick some butt when we need to and show everybody we're a really strong nation um, is sort of the sum of the Jacksonian foreign policy. And the last one is the uh, um, Wilsonian um, foreign policy, uh, which is more focus on land power and, and uh, you know, alliance building and sort of thing. So it's all, it's very interesting. And there's a lot of great history in it. Um, and his, you know, sort of 
turns around, gets through that part and, and is telling us that the Navy needs to be built towards some end. The challenge, and I'll leave this to the reader to decipher, is it takes years to build ships. You have to have a multi-decade, uh, at least, you know, plan to build ships and construct things. And the American people elect a new administration every four years or at, at, at the most eight. Um, and different administrations want to take the country naturally in different directions based on you know what their mandate is and what their views are so uh it, how, how you square that circle i don't know um but uh that's that's the gist of the article it's very, very interesting very well written yeah i i took away i, I agree with you that it's very difficult to square that circle because you know for example the ford class carriers that we were talking about a few minutes ago you know those ships will last 50 maybe longer than 50 years right so that's going to be six, eight administrations, maybe it'll be a long time. And so our U.S. foreign policy goals and objectives will change uh, over time, despite the fact that we built those ships for whatever we built them for in, in the year, you know, in the 2020s. Um, but I, I did, uh, one of the things I appreciated about Commander Marchant's article is that it, it, it gives Navy personnel, Navy leaders, um, a, a vocabulary, right, that could possibly help them explain to Congress in terms of classical schools of U.S. foreign po policy how a particular force structure could uh, apply to whatever Congress uh, and an administration want to do. So, hey, if, you're, if your foreign policy goals are, you know, aligned with uh, a Wilsonian school, you know, this is what a Navy could look like, right? And this is sort of where you should put your priorities. And if you're more Hamiltonian in your thinking, then, you know, perhaps it looks like this. I mean, it's it's big picture. It's a definitely a, a, a little hand, big map kind of piece, but it's instructive and it's interesting. And it's it, it's very, I think it's well-written and it, it, it looks at the world at a strategic level in a way that, you know, Lieutenant Commander Hamlet never could have, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it, it's a it's a thought piece in a sense that there are critics of U.S. foreign policy has become too militarized, and we tend to you know set the policy based on what we have and what we can do instead of you know buying and building what we need to to achieve some end and it sort of gets backwards in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm mindful of time. We're, good. We're up here on about 26 minutes. I wanted to talk about a couple more pieces. Uh, one, I uh, wanted to mention the American Sea Power article this month is uh, by Elbridge Colby or Bridge Colby, A Strategy of Denial in the Western Pacific. Uh, and uh, Bridge Colby was on the podcast a year ago or so, and he was talking about his book, which is also titled Strategy of Denial. Uh, and if you've read Bridge, he's uh, very prominent in uh, military and foreign policy uh, Twitter circles. He's, uh, he speaks a lot. He was the principal author uh, when he was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy uh, of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which, as I point out in my editor's page this month, is one of the probably the, the most footnoted thing that we've, um, you know, in terms of, you know, footnotes or endnotes that we've run in proceedings for the past five years, so many authors refer to that national defense strategy because it sets, it sets the priorities. Uh, but Bridge is basically, he, he uh, his, his piece is, uh, if I had to, you know, give an elevator speech about it is right now, uh, in terms of inter international security challenges to the United States, the most profound challenge is a growing 
regional hegemonic China. Uh, and if we don't want the world to look like what China wants it to look like, and I think more and more people are are coming to the conclusion that China's interests are inimical to the United States' interests, um, that we've got to contain China, deter China, stop China uh, from continuing its re building its regional hegemony, because that hege regional hegemony will lead to global hegemony if they are successful. And, and he points to Taiwan being the key link right now in this decade. He talks about the Davidson window uh, of, of this decade being uh, preeminent. Uh, he mentions the, you know, the, the capabilities that the Chinese have built, been building for Taiwan and for the region, uh, and that all the other things that we do with our military power, particularly our naval power, should sort of be de-emphasized and being able to defend uh, and deny China the, their goal of taking Taiwan uh, is the most important thing that we need to do now. Um, it's, uh, you know, he, and he's not, as he points out, he's not a, a, a military tactician or um, military technologist. And so he doesn't, he doesn't prescribe a lot of different specific things we ought to be buying. He does mention mining in there. He does mention uh, the combination, both stand-in forces. He mentions uh, the, the changes that the Marine Corps is making in terms of uh, emphasizing um, disaggregated uh, expeditionary advanced base operations, stand-in forces, the ability to, um, if not control the sea, at least deny the sea to uh, to the Chinese military. But um, that's our that's our American Sea Power piece this month uh, by Br Bridge Colby, um, and I, I commend it to the reader. A any any thoughts on from you guys on that one? Yeah, I, I mean it's a good it's a good piece. Um, and you know, we we had Bridge speak at our uh, history conference as well in in October. Um, did a great job. Um, I found it, uh, it the one interesting thing about it is Bridge uses the term dominate a lot in the that China's trying to dominate Asia. It's it's a little unclear to me anyway what he means by dominate. Um, you know, it can mean obviously a lot of different things. Um, but I would suggest suggest that it's and not to put words in Bridges' mouth, but the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's number one goal is to stay in power. Um, and they, it's not a democracy, so they, they don't have a, a peaceful transfer of power kind of model. And they, um, they view the world as um, if countries can imitate them, more the, more the better, uh, their style of government. Um, and at least if countries can accommodate them in a sense that they don't, um, challenge their their governing principles or anything like that, and deal with them. That's better. So China wants that from, especially its near neighbors, um, and they, to get that, they need them to rely less on the United States and more on kind of China and and you know uh, bowing to China's preeminence in Asia. Uh, there are territorial disputes for real in the South China Sea, particularly and uh, in the Senkakus, but also, and of course, there's Taiwan, which is a core interest of the Chinese government. So um, that's, that's what I see. How, uh, how much military force we need the United States in the Western Pacific on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to uh, boutresh our allies and, and give them a sense that, that we're there and we, we're not going anywhere. I don't know. That's a 
that's a question for strategists and military thinkers, but it's something, it's something that needs to be there. And I think Bridge would say a lot more uh, of our of military power needs to be there on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, he, he's definitely, he echoes, you know, Bob Work's comments uh, of a little over a year ago about, you know, sort of the, uh, we, we've been chasing our tail with forward presence, particularly in the CENTCOM area and Bridges, you know, he, he sort of, did, did, he, he echoes Bob and says, yeah, that forward presence for presence sakes in other places of the world that are less important right now needs to be either zeroed out or really de-emphasized so that particularly naval power is in the most important place in the world right now. And that is in the Western Pacific. Um, you know, it's interesting for folks that have been paying attention to the American Sea Power Project. One of the things that Bridge is sort of dismissive of Nick Lambert's point, um, and I don't know that he disagrees with Nick overall that the that the goal of naval power is to either protect shipping or to derange your your adversary's uh, shipping. Um, but uh, he he's, he sort of dismisses that idea that some some have said, oh, well, you know, we can handle the China problem by taking care of it at the peripheries. We could do a distant blockade of China. Uh, we could impact uh, shipping flows to and from China. And, and Bridge points out that the Chinese have done a lot of things to uh, to. Um, to sort of bring into question that ability, right? So they've built this, you know, the brick and road, uh, belt and road initiative. Um, you know, they've got, now they've got uh, a lot of more direct, direct ties, particularly for POL uh, to Russia. Uh, and so the ability to blockade, a, you know, a continental power is, you know, that's not going to be an immediate satisfaction, you know, telling the Chinese, oh, well, we just stopped all shipping through the, Strait of Malacca um, is probably not going to have the impact uh, that that some probably wish it would. So it, it's interesting to see how these uh, you know things are kind of playing out. But uh, Bridges' point, although he, I wouldn't say he dismisses Nick Lambert, but he sort of dismisses him in terms of the right here, right now. Um, it's got to be about a strategy of denial around Taiwan um, rather than. Um, a, a longer term, you know, yes, we need a free and open, you know, uh, global shipping environment. And the ability to threaten that is what would deter China. He's like, no, nah, that's probably not going to deter China from what it wants. Uh, anyway, um, I always like to talk about asked and answered. We're, we're running out of time here. But Bill, what do we have for asked and answered this month? Um, sure. It's the uh, what are the what are or were the best uh, and worst Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine bases and stations uh, and why? Uh, I, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, one of the leading contenders was ADAC Alaska. And I can tell you, I, I'd been to Naval, uh, Naval Station ADAC Alaska briefly in the late 80s. Uh, it wasn't as, as uh, austere. It's austere for sure, but it wasn't as austere as the picture in the uh, article shows, which is from the late 40s when sailors were living in Quonset huts um, as ADAC was being put together after the Second World War. Um, so there's some other interesting, uh, both good and bad. Uh, Naval Air Station QB Point was one of the a fan favorite of many. I've been there many times uh, when it was open, um, and it, it was all all true. It was a great, uh, great, uh, great base, great O club, one of the best O clubs in the Western Pacific, <laughs> probably. Um, and um, 
One interesting one was a, uh, a Coast Guard veteran wrote to us that uh, the Scotch Cap Light Station on Unimac Island, Alaska, which is even further west on the Aleutian chain from um, ADAC, uh, was the worst place uh, he'd ever served. Um, and you were resupplied aperiodically by a buoy tender uh, that brought supplies to the island. So uh, for all the people who get, you know, out there who, uh, hate it when they can't get a good Wi-Fi signal um, or, you know, their hotel room doesn't have uh, 97 cable channels that they, you know, they like. Yeah. These are some of the places that uh, our, our predecessors have served uh, that are either good or, or bad. Yeah, there's some funny stories there. And I agree that, that I can't imagine living, uh, you know, being stationed at a lighthouse at the very tip of the Aleutian Islands. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about remote and isolated. Closer, much closer to Russia uh, than than to the Alaskan mainland or to the West Coast of the United States. Hey, um, I, a, uh, a viewer just popped a question. Digital Formosan uh, just asked a question, and we're not going to have time to tackle this one because it's a big question. This is a, this is a you know ten thousand dollar question. But do you think the U.S. Navy is prepared if the PLA starts a nuclear strike for dominance in the South China Sea? Um, you know, it, there's. Uh, we actually are working on an article right now. We'll be uh, having our, our uh, monthly editorial board. Uh, one of the one of the articles that um, is is in consideration right now for an upcoming issue of the American Sea Power Project is uh, is on uh, nuclear force posture, uh, and and the uh, the the author argues that the U.S sort of got away from thinking about uh, nuclear weapons in any other context other than sort of mutually assured destruction at the very highest level, at the strategic level, and that uh, the Chinese are now modernizing and rapidly building up uh, their nuclear force posture. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is, uh, is uh, dedicated towards tactical nuclear weapons, uh, but this is an issue that people are starting to think about again is it's not just about deterring uh, ICBMs uh, and, and deterring that with a, an overwhelming counterforce strike um, and counter value strike, but starting to think about what does an escalation ladder mean and what does that escalation ladder mean if there are tactical nuclear weapons and what do you think about your adversary potentially escalating to using tactical nuclear weapons? So uh, it's, boy, that's a complicated one. We could write PhDs on it. Um, but uh, thank you for asking the question and, and stay tuned to proceedings in the coming months because we're probably going to have some articles on that topic, at least one article coming up uh, in the American Sea Power Project uh, later this year. And you I guys have any thoughts on that? I, well, I just wanted to note, yeah, I got curious when I read this one and, um, about China's nuclear buildup, which I was kind of aware of, but got me curious this time. And uh, most of their uranium for these is coming from two major U.S. allies, which is, uh, I, I don't want to uh, uranium shame any of our allies, but sort of a curious thing to me that um, we'd be condoning uh, China's buildup and profiting from it in the wider sense of within the West. Uh, it's like Lenin's line about the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we'll hang them. Uh, <laughs> You know, anyway, uh, it, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting piece. And maybe it does get to that question just a little bit. Yeah, I would I, I would say that to the um, to digital Formosan that 
I don't know. My, my personal feeling on this is that the PLA would not start a nuclear strike for determined the dominance in the South China Sea. Uh, they, they probably would not start there. Uh, you know, it, the only thing I think that would uh, that would yield a, a nuclear escalation from the, the Chinese at this point would be if they decided to go for Taiwan and it was going badly. That's where you might see them escalate because it is a an, an issue of strategic national importance and national importance to the survival of the CCP. But that's just my thoughts off the top of my head right now. Bill, anything? Yeah, the Chinese, I mean, as far as I know, they still have no first use policy. Um, doesn't mean they won't adhere to it. But uh, so I don't, um, I have a hard time seeing them using that in the South China Sea for, you know, I'm not sure what they're striking and what the, what the point is. But um, it'd be more interesting to think that would they, would they consider it if, if it were, if they were decided to take Taiwan by force and uh, to preempt uh, U.S. Navy involvement. Yeah, um, we're about out of time here. I saw Harry Lime, who's one of our frequent listeners. Uh, he, he popped a question in. Do you think the refit of destroyers, so that's the Zumwalt class with hypersonic missiles, will make them useful? Uh, I think the answer is yes, based on uh, conversations I've had with both a prior CEO of one of those destroyers. So the, the, the former CEO of the Michael Mansour is the former chairman of our editorial board. Uh, and also a conversation I had with, um, uh, with Vice Admiral Kitchener, Surf Four Commander, Surface Forces Commander, who mentioned that upgrade project. And he mentioned the Mansour's deployment and what they learned from that deployment in terms of the capabilities, particularly the stealth capabilities of that platform. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking that the combination of that very stealthy platform with hypersonic uh, weapons on board will make it, um, you know, a tactically and operationally significant platform. And with that, we're about out of time. Uh, that wraps up another episode of the podcast brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute since 1873, bringing an independent open forum for the advancement of sea power. To become a member, go to usni.org forward slash join. If you enjoy the show, ring the bell, subscribe to the channel, tell your friends, and until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.